What's going on, everyone? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Renaissance. Shout out to everybody joining us uh, today for our online service. Before I get started in today's message, I want to pray for us. So Heavenly Father, I pray that right now with all of the things that have happened in this past week and all of the things that may or may not be happening right now, uh, I pray that we would have the ability to focus and to hear you speak to us loudly and clearly. Lord, bless me right now in this moment to, to say things that are from you. Bless us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't say this looking for sympathy, but one of the challenges of being a pastor is that I often get put in situations where like, I have no idea how to respond. Now, a lot of you know what that feels like, where you're in a situation and you don't know what to say next. Sometimes it's in a conversation or an argument with someone, and like three days later, you're in the shower shampooing your hair, and the perfect comeback comes to mind. Sometimes you hold on to it, or other times you're having that imaginary argument in the shower. But for me, there's been so many times when someone has asked me a question, and I just didn't know what to say. Now, sometimes the moment, pass, the moment passes, and I don't have another chance to, to fix it. But other times, the question keeps on coming up over and over again. And finally, sometimes, eventually, I find something helpful to say to add to the conversation. Now, one of the things I love about Renaissance and everybody who's a part of our family is we have a lot of people who, for the first time, are really trying to incorporate scripture into their lives. And being perfectly honest, one of the challenges in doing that is you'll, you'll start to encounter passages of scripture that are confusing, that on the surface level, they're, they're downright offensive. Now, today, we're looking at a passage of scripture that's like that, that on the surface level, it's a tough pill to swallow, and it's about the Passover in the book of Exodus. Now, for those of us uh, who are tracking with us in the book of Exodus, shout out to everybody. But I want to catch everybody up so that we're on the same page as we're uh, moving in this, in this direction today. Uh, so the book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and it starts off uh, with a guy named Moses. And Moses is the leader that God is going to task to free his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. There's this big uh, character named Pharaoh, who Pharaoh is the leader of the free world, of the most powerful country in the world. And Israel at this point has been in slavery for about 430 years. God comes to Moses and says, I'm gonna use you to free my people. Now, up to that point, that sounds pretty good. But as we talked about last week, one of the methods that God used to free his people were these things called plagues. And the first number of plagues, blood in the Nile, frogs, gnats, these are all things that while on the surface they don't make a lot of sense to us, they're not really offensive. But the 10th plague is one that has given so many people challenges over the years in Christianity. I've had so many conversations with people that when they got to this text, they said to themselves, man, there's no way in the world that I could worship a God like this. So let's dive right in. Exodus 11 and 4, it says this. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. At midnight, I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who was at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never before or ever will be again. Now, as a result of this last plague, the children of Israel were let go 
And this is actually a very pivotal point in the book of Exodus where they go from being enslaved to being released. Now, real question for all of us who are thinking people, like how could you worship a God like this? One of the things that we talked about in our How to Read a Bible class, which is on our YouTube channel right now and in our podcast, is the first question we should always ask ourselves of scripture is what does this say about God? So what does this text right here teach us about God? Now, for the most part, I've had a lot of people over the years have very different reactions to this scripture. And there's a lot of people who first honestly just dismiss it and saying, this is like a really primitive way of communicating about divinity and about God. And there's like no way that like the real God actually killed the firstborn of everybody in Egypt. Like that's just really, really harsh. And it feels super excessive. Now, a lot of these people uh, do this out of a a challenge and trying to reconcile the God of what they see, the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. And they believe that the God of the Old Testament is a God of, of justice and wrath and killing the firstborn of everyone. But the God of the New Testament is love and grace. And in Jesus Christ, we see all these attributes, sacrifice and embracing the other. And how is it that we can reconcile these two? Now, here's a challenge for people who dismiss the Passover and the Exodus as something that is not reliable. When you see the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus, Jesus like deeply believed not only that this event happened, but rather that this event specifically pointed to him and his purpose and what he came to do in his life. When Jesus taught about the last, the Lord's Supper, when uh, the night before he was betrayed, Jesus uh, gathered his friends around for a Passover meal. Like the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus was celebrating the festival of unleavened bread, which is a festival celebrating when God freed his people here in, in Exodus. So in some ways, if we dismiss this as primitive, we're claiming a higher enlightenment than even Jesus himself. And that's a really dangerous place to be. Now, there's another group of people who take this to the other extreme. And they are people who say, you know what? God is God and he can do whatever he wants. And that's it. End of story. End of conversation. And it toss around big words like sovereignty or that God is sovereign, meaning that God is in control. He's all powerful. He's all wise. And who are we to question God? Now, to a certain extent, that's true. Uh, humans are like the grass of the field. We're here one day and gone the next. Who are we to, to question God? But I just think that that's like a really inefficient way to go about your faith because we're not, we're not asking critical questions. We're not we're not looking at the text seriously. We're not involving our minds in our pursuit of God. Now, when Jesus was asked, what is the most important command? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 22. He says, love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All your mind. Our faith involves thinking. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think if we're honest, any one of us who thinks about this text would respond that intellectually and emotionally, it is not a satisfying answer to say, well, God can just do whatever he wants. On top of that, all of my friends who don't really rock with Jesus, none of them are satisfied with that answer that God can just do what he wants. That seems like arbitrary and just not a God that they want to actually live their life in pursuit of. And if we love our neighbor and we want our neighbors to be drawn closer to the God, then we have to think more critically about this question. What does this mean? What is this text teaching us? 
about who God is. Now, the third group of people are kind of where I am or where I was for the last number of years in my life and in my faith. And I believed that the story was true, but I just kind of cringed every time I heard it. Right. So like even reading through the Exodus a couple months ago for the first couple times in a long time, like I would read the story, get to this part and like read it fast and just like get to the next part, get to the Ten Commandments where God wasn't killing people. And I was like, man, it just felt like I couldn't square all that I knew about God, all that I preached about God, all that I know about God coming in the person of Jesus with what I see here in the text. Now, the good news for us today is we don't have to diminish it as, as archaic. We don't have to over-spiritualize it, and we don't have to cringe at it. This text shows us a lot about the nature of God, and I hope to prove it to you today. Now, there's four things about this text that I want to pull out today, and each one of these builds on the other. So after point one, you're not going to be convinced just yet, but just stick with me, and hopefully, eventually, you'll come to feel at the end of today that this is not just a God that you can accept this is not just a God that you can say, well, he does whatever he wants to do, but that this is a God deserving and worthy of your worship, of your life. Now, for a couple of reasons, um, deep down inside of my own life, my journey in understanding this text better and in understanding God better in general uh, is, is aided by this. So number one, we all want a God of justice, right? This is low-hanging fruit. Uh, in the last number of months, we've talked so much about justice. Many of you involved in our church have been very heartened by the fact that we talk about a God who is a God uh, of justice. And one of the most uncomfortable things about uh, my job as a, as, a, as a preacher, as a pastor, is when we have to talk about God who's a God of justice, not of love and not just of love or of butterflies or of nice things, but rather that God is a judge and that God will judge evil. Now, all of us deep down inside, whether or not we've been thinking about that, we all want a God that will not ignore evil and wrongdoing. Now, to mean that God can watch atrocities go by and not do anything about it would not be a God that you would want to worship. And here's why. Whenever I see something wrong, whenever I see real evil, real wrongdoing, it angers me and I want that person to see justice. A couple of months ago in the summertime, when so much was going on in our country and our world, and uh, it was a pretty heavy time, and I was going on Facebook, which was problem number one, and I saw something that got me so angry, and I said, God, this demands justice. Somebody must pay for this. You have to fix this wrong. Um, somebody was putting raisins in their potato salad, and I was like, Lord, how, how long, oh Lord, would you allow these things to happen? Now, in all seriousness, uh, over the summer and over the, the months when we had so many protests and different things, there were hundreds of thousands of people who would line up the streets in the middle of a pandemic to protest and to demand justice because deep down inside, that's what we want. And a God who doesn't pursue justice is not a God that's worthy of our worship. So here's what we see about the God of the Bible in um, Exodus 3, 7 through 8. It says, uh, this is what the Lord said. I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. So we see a God who hears us, who understands us, and who has come down to actually right the wrong. Now, over the decades, many of my heroes have been people who have believed in this God of justice, people who have been able to face fierce opposition because they believed in this God 
of justice. Uh, one of my uh, heroes is a woman named Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, she was a voting rights activist in Mississippi and one of the least talked about people in the civil rights era that deserves way more credit than uh, what she's getting. But uh, there was one time where Fannie Lou Hamer got arrested for registering black people to vote in Mississippi. And after she was ar arrested, she was uh, brutally beaten and even sexually violated by one of those officers who arrested her. And on her way out the precinct, Fannie Lou Hamer turned around to that cop and said, do you people ever think or wonder how you'll feel when the time comes and you'll have to meet God? What Fannie Lou Hamer was hanging on to was this notion that we serve a God of justice and he does not turn a blind eye to evil. All right, so I know what y'all are thinking. Jordan, I do want a God of justice. But what God did here in, in the book of Exodus in, in chapter 11, it's kind of excessive. Like he had to kill the firstborn male of everybody. Like it doesn't feel like a God that I, I want to worship. Even though I want a God of justice, that just feels like it's too far and, and too much. And I think that's because there's something deep down inside of all of us that is deeply bothered when someone has to pay for something that they didn't do. Now, one of my favorite pastimes is listening to podcasts and I love murder mysteries. If you have any suggestions, drop them in the, in the, in the chat if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook. And I love watching, murder, uh, watching and listening to different murder mysteries, but there's some of them that just make me really sad. And I listened to one uh, called In the Dark, and it's a story about a man named Curtis Flowers. And Curtis Flowers was convicted wrongfully for a murder over 20-something years, and he spent over 20 years of his life uh, in prison for something that he clearly didn't do, and he was later released for it. And in listening to that, I was just so bothered to think about someone who had to pay for something that they didn't do. But that is not what's going on here in the book of Exodus. Now, our problem is that in general, we misunderstand the structural and systemic nature of oppression. In this account in Exodus, when God struck the firstborn, what God was doing was God was undoing the deeply entrenched 400-year system of oppression that was keeping his people in place. Now, I read this this week, and it was an eye-opening moment for me. I've only had about five or six of these moments in my entire life following Jesus, where it felt like words just jumped out the page. And I read this from, from Exodus 3, and here's what it says. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. The million dollar question then is, what is the power of the Egyptians? Essentially, what we're seeing here in scripture is that the power of the Egyptians was not located in one person. It wasn't Pharaoh. And in order for God to free his people, that means that God couldn't just take out Pharaoh and maybe his number two or number three guy, but that God had to undo the entire system of oppression that was in place. Because that power of the Egyptians had infected every single crevice of their culture that the only thing that would undo it would have to be equally structural and systemic. Now, what is the linchpin of the oppressive structure in ancient Egyptian culture? What held it all together? I'm very glad you asked that question. The firstborn son. Now, in ancient Egypt, 
they practice something called primogeniture. Uh, primogeniture. Now, primogeniture in ancient Egypt was the law and the custom that the firstborn son inherited the parent's entire estate. Now, stay with me for a quick second, because a lot of ancient cultures had uh, stuff like this and customs like this, where the older son would get the majority of the state. But in ancient Egypt, the firstborn son got, got it all. Now, Jordan, you keep on calling this system oppressive. I get it. The oldest son gets the estate. But why do you call it oppressive? Why are you saying that? Because their version of primogeniture was so bad because the entire educational, military, economic, and religious system was built around having people beneath you. This is a system that God had to undo. Now, we see this firsthand in American slavery. Over the summer, one of our members, Dr. Angela Sims, taught a workshop in our Gospel and Race workshop series on the backstory and the history of racism in America. And she talked about a turning point in American culture and American slavery called Bacon's Rebellion. Now, before this point in American culture, there were some cases of indentured servitude. Um, in, in some cases, even blacks could even uh, by their own freedom. And slavery at that point was not the deeply entrenched racialized caste system that we, come to, we have come to now know as American slavery. That had not yet been cemented. But after Bacon's Rebellion, all of that changed. Now, what was Bacon's Rebellion? It was an alliance between European and black indentured servants and some Africans and a mixture of indentured and free people. And here's what the rebellion was against. It was against the up colonial upper class of people, and it was an uprising. The upper colonial class of people realized that these people outnumber us. So what they did is they sought to create a system where they can offer the indentured white servants a place with someone beneath them. And later, what you see in American society is a now firmly racialized caste system where the poor whites who were then offered jobs as the slave patrol and offered different jobs in order to agree to end the revolt, what came out of that was an entirely oppressive system in which blacks were now not just servants, but now believed to be inherently predisposed for a life of servitude. Now, what created that system? It was the colonial upper class, the firstborn who had everything, who wanted to retain their power and their wealth. And in order to do that, they created a system in which it would thrive with having people beneath you. When I call the ancient Egyptian version of primogeniture oppressive, it's because that system thrived on having people beneath you because the younger siblings would get nothing. They needed people beneath them, which meant they would have never let God's people go because they needed slavery to support their entire culture, economy, religious system, everything was dependent on having slaves. Now, if God would have taken Pharaoh out, the entire structure would have remained in place. Here's what one theologian says. The attack against the firstborn was not an arbitrary slaughter of innocence, but rather a powerful demonstration against the entire culture of Egypt. The eldest ruled the younger siblings, and this is why having slaves was so important to the Egyptians. Because just like in Bacon's Rebellion, this gave the lower classes someone else to control and to dominate. 
Now, we now understand that the death of the firstborn son was not just another sign of divine might. No, this plague struck at the very epicenter of the Egyptian civilization and paved the way for liberation. Now, in this story, God was not acting arbitrarily or excessively, but rather God was undoing the entire Egyptian system of oppression. And by God striking the first class, the firstborn of, uh, in, in, in their culture, God was eradicating the structure that had been built for over 400 years that was going to entirely keep his people down. Also, very fun fact, I don't know why so many people, when we read this scripture, automatically think about two-year-olds. When we see that God was struck down the firstborn, a lot of these people were 60. What do we see here in verse 12? It says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, judgments. I am the Lord. Egypt had a very rigid power structure that was held in place. And if you go back a couple chapters and read chapter five, read chapter five and just look at the power structures that are held in place. Uh, in Exodus 5 and 21, it talks about the Pharaoh and his overseers, uh, Pharaoh and his officials in verse 21. In verse 13, it talks about the overseers who ruled over the Egyptian slave drivers. In verse 14, the slave drivers ruled over the Israelite foremen in verse 15, and they ruled over the people in captivity in verse 16. Now, when God struck the firstborn, what God was doing was taking down the entire oppressive power structure that was dependent on the firstborn, inheriting it all, that would kept other people subjugated and continued oppression. What God was doing here in the book of Exodus was getting rid of the structure that would have kept his people in oppression, and that is a game changer. God was not randomly, arbitrarily killing kids. He was getting rid of the ruling class elite that necessitated, that would have necessitated his people remain in bondage and slavery. And we misunderstand the structural nature of, of systems of oppression and how these systemic things work together. And this changes the game completely in how we understand the story in Exodus uh, altogether. So number one, we want a God of justice. And number two, we misunderstand the systemic and structural nature of evil. And number three, man, we just read this story from the wrong perspective. So a lot of times we read it and think about how devastated we would be if God killed one of our kids. And of course, that would be absolutely devastating. And we, we fail to understand the true meaning of this text. Um, changing your perspective on how we approach this story here in Exodus will, will really change how you respond emotionally to it. Now, most of us would say killing anyone is wrong. And again, uh, please don't hear anything I'm saying today as a condoning violence, encouraging violence in any form, in any manner. Um, judgment is not, does not belong to Jordan or any human being to do that. Uh, but in 2009, there was a movie that came out that captivated uh, audiences all around the country and had people cheering loudly for people getting killed. And that movie was Taken. Now, in the movie Taken, if you haven't seen it in the last 13, 12, 13 years, and spoiler alert, you should have watched it by, the, by now. Uh, it was about a man named Brian Mills, played by Liam Neeson. And he was a former government operative and uh, trying to reconnect with his daughter, Kim. Then his, his worst fear became real, and his daughter, along with her friend, got abducted while overseas. And 
vile men now had his daughter um, and Brian Mills or Liam Neeson, he utters this famous speech that a lot of you have heard before. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have any money. But what I do have is I have a very particular set of skills. Skills, skills that I have acquired over a very long career. Skills, skills that make me like a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I'm not going to look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. And in the movie, my man was a man of his word. Homie shot like 293 people. He was taking everybody out and he took no prisoners and was passionately in pursuit of the freedom of his firstborn. And as audiences all over the world cheered, uh, we instinctually knew that this movie wasn't a movie truly about violence. It was a movie about love. He loved his firstborn and he would do nothing to, he would stop at nothing to, to secure her freedom. Now our God does not love violence, but he does love his people and he will stop at nothing for our rescue. Taken stole this idea from Exodus. They actually owe my man Moses some royalties for this joint. Because in Exodus 4 and 22, here's what we see our God saying. He says, and you will say this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. Our God has a very special set of skills. Skills that he has acquired from before the foundation of the world. He is omnipotent and all-powerful, and his skills make him a nightmare for people who want to uphold systems of oppression to keep his people down. Now, the first step that all of us have to ask whenever we're approaching scripture is not necessarily what does it mean to us, but what would the original audience have taken this to mean? They would not have read it from the side of the Egyptians. They would have read it as a love story, a story about a God who came down from all eternity, a God who stepped into their current moment and took down the enemy that was trying to keep them in oppression. Now, so number one, we all want a God of justice. Number two, we, we truly do misunderstand the, the nature and the, and the depth to which systemic and structural forces are at play in perpetuating and maintaining evil and how these structures and systems need to come down in order for us to experience freedom. Uh, number three, we really do need to read the stories from the right perspective. Um, and number four, this story by itself is, is incomplete. Now, there's a really fascinating piece of scripture in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about the Old Testament. And in John 5, he says to some uh, Jewish leaders, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. Later in another scripture in Matthew, Jesus says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, one of my favorite things I love to do uh, is to cook. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a mood cooker. My wife is a recipe cooker. I'm a mood cooker. I never write anything down. I have no idea how I just did something. Sometimes it turns out amazing. Sometimes not so much. And 
uh, what ends up happening a lot of times is I'll go to my wife and I say, hey, yeah, these beans are kind of missing something. What is it missing? And we'll add different things to it. Now, before I bring her over to the conversation to help me fix it, they are edible. Like there's nothing wrong with them. You can technically eat them and not get sick, but they're just missing something. Like they're, they're incomplete. In some ways, this story still leaves a kind of bad taste in some people's mouth. And it's because by itself, it's incomplete. This story, like the entirety of the canon that Jesus says, actually points to him. Now, next week, we're going to get to this in a lot more detail to understand this. But if you're, if you're left right now still thinking about all the things and still chewing on it, just know that the, the final point of this scripture is meant to turn our eyes and our attention and to show us the nature of Jesus more clearly. And it's hopefully going to do two things. One, give us a sense of hope and also a pattern for, for freedom. Now, in this story, the way it ends up is that this is what's referred to as the first Passover. And God gave Moses all of these instructions about what he was to do in order to avoid the catastrophe that was going to come upon the Egyptians. So they were to slay a lamb and to put the blood of the lamb on their do doorposts, and they would be passed over from the death angel that was going to come and strike the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, for thousands of years, Jewish people would come to celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread or the Passover, this meal that they would come and, and take part in to reenact God's freedom for them. But there was one meal that was more special than any other meal in the history of mankind. It was when Jesus sat around the table with his disciples and he was preparing the Passover meal. Some theologians would argue that this Passover meal had the bread and the wine and the bitter herbs, but there was no lamb on the table because there was a lamb at the table. And Jesus himself was telling everyone that he himself was our sacrificial lamb. As John says, look, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Now, if we're going to be serious about pursuing God, I think it's going to require us that we take our eyes off of ourselves and put it on Jesus, the Lamb of God, who not just puts a blanket on top of, but he takes away our sin. He ends the separation between us and God. Now, that's meant to give us hope and confidence, not in yourself, not in me, not in the church, not in Christian leaders, but in Jesus. And that's the true beauty of the story that we're going to get to next week as well. But in the meantime, I want us resting in this truth that Jesus is presenting to us today. And I want to point us in a different direction for depending on where you are. If you're new in your faith and you have never come to actually want to give your life to Jesus, I want you to fill out that connection card and there's a box there. Or you can text Harlem to 94000 and one of our pastors will reach out to you. And for those of you who are Christian, I want you to take a little bit of an inventory right now. How much of your life, how much of your day, how much of your weekend has been spent beating yourself up for stuff that you have done and not looking to Christ, who truly has taken away the sin from us, not temporarily, but, but permanently? And what would it look like for you to actually trust in him, not in yourself, but to trust in him? Let me pray for us right now. Uh, God, our Father, I'm so grateful for time to wrestle through uh, texts like this. Uh, to become aware of things that we didn't know before. And Lord, I pray that you would um, just really solidify and, uh, and cement these things in our hearts. Let them become beautiful truths that we live out. Bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.